You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, welcome to Resonate Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful that we get to walk through the next sermon in the series that we're calling Modern Romance. We're talking about love, sex, and dating because this is an integral part of what it means to be human, an integral part of your experience as a human. And today we have a lot to get into. We usually go about 35 minutes. Today we're going to be closer to about 45 minutes. So just want to tell you right now, hunker down, get ready, strap in, uh, grab something to write with or something to write on. Uh, We're going to essentially dive into one of the most complex things that I think we can talk about, which is what is God's design for sexuality. First, first, I just want to say there is going to be some challenging stuff. We've been praying for you as you as you watch and as you listen and as you engage your mind and your heart in this. In order to really kick us off in the right direction, we have to go to the words of Jesus. We have to go to the words uh, from Scripture. We have to go to the words of Paul. We have to go to the things that God has inspired to be written to reveal truth to us. And that's where we're going to spend the most of our time today. So as you approach, And as you hear these things that we're going to talk about, I want to just let you know that I think your posture in this is of the utmost importance. Uh, And by posture, I don't just mean like the the angle of your back and your shoulders in your chair right now. Uh, By posture, I mean the direction of your heart, the state of your heart and the state of your conscience. If you came in today uh, really hoping to, pr- to prove yourself to be blameless, that you have some hardcore preset convictions and a predetermined mindset, and, and you are desiring maybe to prove yourself blameless today, uh, I want to tell you, you might leave a little unsatisfied uh, at the end of our time together. Uh, you'll, probably, you'll probably leave unsatisfied. And honestly, not just not just today during our time, but uh, if, if you uh, continually maybe approach God or approach the scriptures or approach the world uh, with the posture of you are blameless and you're out to prove other people uh, wrong, uh, then you might have a really hard time with, with Jesus himself. Uh, as it turns out, uh, people who think that they're blameless uh, typically are at odds with Jesus, uh, not in, in total agreement with him. We actually find that the people uh, who notice and realize that they're broken the people who who understand that they probably have it wrong, the people who are hurt and are willing not to defend themselves uh, but to expose themselves, those are the people who primarily find Jesus to be sweet. And so that's uh, just maybe a a word of of wisdom for you. Um, The one who recognizes that they need help finds Jesus to be incredibly good news. And Jesus actually alludes to this in Matthew chapter 21. He gives this uh, parable and he basically says, I'm kind of like a huge rock. I'm kind of like a huge stone. He calls himself a cornerstone. Uh, A huge, massive stone that you can either build your life on this, this big stone, or I'm so, I'm so big uh, that I'm going to crush you. Either, either you, you build your foundation on me as the cornerstone, or I become the rock that crushes you. There's an old saying uh, from, from Charles Spurgeon. He used to say that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. 
The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. That's to say this, that some people will hear the words of Jesus and they will go, I've never heard anything better in my entire life. I would give anything to experience the truth that he's talking about. And some people hear that exact same message, the exact same words, and they go, that's the most vile and disgusting and off-putting thing I've ever heard. I want nothing to do with it. Uh, Our prayer is that uh, melting happens today, not that hardening happens in your heart today. And so with that, we'll dive into the unbelievably complex uh, uh, topic of God's design for sexuality. We'll tackle this in two parts. Uh, Today, we'll talk about sexuality in totality, and next week, we'll talk about sexuality uh, specifically in the act of sex. And I, I believe this is so complex because thinking about human sexuality through God's eyes is pretty foreign to most people. Uh, If you're not a Christian today, I I just want to tell you, I'm so grateful that you are with us. I also want to tell you uh, that my hope is that the primary audience of of people that I'm speaking to are people who already know Jesus, who've already given their life to Jesus, uh, who see him as their Lord, uh, who see him as their God and the director of their life. And if that's not where you are, that's that we're so grateful that you're here with us. We want you to be here with us. Uh, But I do want to tell you, if you adopt a a, a Christian sexual ethic or a Christian sexual morality without actually uh, growing affection for Jesus, uh, you'll be in no better place after watching this than when you first came in. It's not our hope that you would just adapt to morality, uh, but it is our hope that uh, in knowing Christ and growing affection and love and worship for Christ, that he would change who we are. Are, and that the transforming work of Jesus would be what spurs on what we're talking about today. So we're grateful that you're here and we would love for you to listen in. I hope you fall in love with Jesus as you hear what we're talking about today. The, uh, the word sexuality is a very broad word. It encompasses a lot. It's more than just what you do with your genitals. It's more than just the way that you identify yourself in gender. There is a ton working. And so I think we need to come to a commonplace, a working definition of sexuality that we're going to work off of for the rest of our time together today. This is from Deb Hirsch in her book, Redeeming Sex. This is a a beautiful uh, definition of sexuality. Sexuality is our need to be known and to know, our need to love and to be loved, our longing for intimacy and connection with the other. This plays itself out in experiences and expressions of sexual desire. Our American culture today is absolutely bombarding you with half-truths and lies about sexuality about your sexuality, personal sexuality, and social sexuality. What I mean by that is this. In our culture, it is very common in American culture to be exposed to highly sexualized content before even uh, reaching the age of 10 years old. Studies show that right now, most men are exposed to pornography at the age of eight. The age of eight before you're physically developed, before you're mentally or emotionally developed. That's normal in our culture today. 
It's normal in our culture today to have multi-million dollar ad agencies and marketing campaigns uh, targeting uh, sexuality specifically and co-opting it uh, being used to sell you their product. Uh, some of the most intelligent, uh, pointed, effective advertising and marketing campaigns uh, aimed at utilizing sexuality to make you a customer for them. And in doing that over the years, over and over, you and I become desensitized. You and I start to begin to have a false understanding of what true sexuality looks like. Over time, we become distorted because there's consumerism that is connected to sexuality and that's normal in American culture. It's also very normal in American culture to have the people that you trust the most to actually be quiet and silent when it comes to helping you understand what God's design for sexuality is. Uh, our parents, most likely your parents did not enter into meaningful conversations with you about God's design for sexuality, most likely. Uh, most likely is too awkward. More, most likely, uh, maybe they don't know. Most likely they have a misunderstanding and so the idea of helping to teach you and to help you understand how to live in God's design for you is, is most likely entirely unknown. Uh, most parents are not entering into conversations with their kids about this. And I would say if you do have a parent who in any way, shape or form has attempted to fumble through the awkward, to brave through uh, some of the strangeness and the embarrassing situations of sitting you down and talking talking to you about this stuff, that you should count yourself as blessed. You should count yourself as blessed if in any sort of way your parents attempted to help you understand God's design for sexuality, even if it was a bit off, even if it was awkward, you should count yourself extremely blessed that God has given people to you like that. I remember one of our leaders one, told me, one time told me a story uh, about the first time that they were exposed to pornography, the first time they were exposed to pornography. And they told me uh, that it just so happened the very first time that they were ever exposed to it that their dad found out. Their dad found out. And so I'm, I'm like riveted in my chair. I'm like, tell me what happened here. Tell me what happened. Did he, did, he, did he understand what was happening and turn a blind eye? Did he encourage you? What, what happened? Was he himself uh, wrapped in the same claws and that same thing? Did, did he actually help you to understand the truth about this? And our leader went on to tell me uh, their, their dad cleared their schedule on one evening and sat them down and said, hey, I know what happened. I know what you saw. I know what you looked at. I just want to tell you how unbelievably dangerous that is. I want to tell you how life-ruining this could be for you. I want to ask you and beg you to never do this again. It might have been an accident today, but I want to help you to see just how damaging this can be. I remember this leader telling me the story, and I'm thinking, where was that for me? Where was that for me? I wish that, I wish that would have been my story. You might find yourself in that same scenario thinking, some of the people I love and trust most have not helped me to understand what this looks like. Even though sex is magnetic and sexuality is magnetic and our culture knows this, every culture of all time has known just how magnetic sexuality is. And in a culture that is attempting to bombard you with lies and half-truths about sexuality, the silence of the church is deafening. 
It's unbelievable how silent the church has been in this. This might be the first time you've ever been in a church before that has talked to you about this. I had an amazing moment of conviction about three years ago. We were going through a sermon series uh, called Third Way which was essentially, we were explaining how, how our culture wants you to pick one way or the other, but Jesus oftentimes comes in and says, hey, neither of those are right. I have a totally different third way for you. And the topic we were looking at was, was identity and sexuality. And I remember after the sermon, man, so many guys coming up to me and, and sitting with me um, uh, confused and saddened and confessing sexual sin to me over and over again. And, and I remember just thinking, yeah, it's, it's no wonder why you're so confused about this. It, it's no wonder why this is such a rampant part of your life and it seems like it's in the dark. We're not talking to you about this. We're not engaging you in conversations about this. This is a, a huge bummer that we uh, have one of the most uh, highly um, actualized social issues of all time and, and physical issues that are happening inside of you as a human and the church is not speaking to this. So we desperately need truth here. We desperately need truth here. And, and where do we go when we need truth? Well, it turns out that just, uh, unfortunately, the church has been silent, but by the grace of God, he is not silent on this. That he's actually written truth into his scriptures to help guide us and help us to understand what his design is for sexuality. Uh, anytime I leave my house, anytime I leave my house for any sort of journey, any sort of trip, I'm going to the store, uh, I, I'm usually checking myself for three things. And those three things are my phone and my wallet and my keys. I have this kind of like three-pack, like primal understanding, like I need my phone, wallet, and keys. Uh, you know, if I get lost somewhere along the way, like I, I'm, I forget where I am, uh, if I have my phone, wallet, and keys, I could probably locate myself. Uh, if I get into trouble, uh, if I get confused, but I, if I have my phone, wallet, and keys, like I, I could probably find myself out of that confusing situation. Or if I encounter something that I've never seen before, I wasn't expecting, I can make a getaway, I can buy something, I can call somebody if I need to. So those are kind of three very integral parts of traveling for me. And as we embark on a journey of understanding God's design for sexuality, I do just want to tell you that you will absolutely get lost you will absolutely get confused and you will absolutely encounter things that you were not expecting to encounter, especially if you have any sort of like social uh, life at all. If you have friends at all who you talk to and who you know are like real functioning people, if you have family uh, who are asking some similar questions about this, you will absolutely uh, come to a place where you don't know how to move forward. And so what I want to do today is to give you your phone, wallet, keys, effectively, in Scripture. I want, to, I want to give you three places in the Bible that are going to serve as your phone, wallet, keys to be able to go back to and say, when I'm confused, when I'm lost, when I don't know where to go, when I'm experiencing something I don't know how to deal with, these are the places that I run to in the Word of God. Here they are. Our first guiding text is in Genesis chapter 1. So why don't you just right now, out loud, say Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Say it again. Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is our first guiding text for you. It says this in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Right off the bat here, really profound, you were designed to image God. You were designed in the likeness of God. 
You were designed with sociological and emotional and spiritual faculties that mimic the characteristic of who God is himself. This doesn't mean that God looks like you. We don't teach that. It doesn't mean that he has the skin tone that you have, or the physical features of God. This is not what this is talking about. But this is to say that the wholeness of your design mimics and reflects the characteristics of God. And because of that, it is in your best interest, living into your design, to love like God does. It's in your best interest to think like God does, to move like God does, to see the world the way that God does, to live a godly life is in your best interest. This is a guiding truth for you. Now, the reason this is a guiding truth on the topic of sexuality specifically is because you were designed in the image of God and you were designed with a sexuality. That's a crazy thought, right? I mean, it's it's amazing to even think about the fact that those two things can be don't have to be mutually exclusive. It's amazing to think that like God designed you on purpose with a sexuality. We don't talk very much about that, do we? It almost seems heretical or blasphemous to say that the presence of human sexuality mimics something of the image and the characteristic of God. Now remember our definition a bit earlier, we're talking about our need to love and and be loved, our need to uh, experience intimacy and have and give intimacy and to know other people. But sexuality specifically is expressed all throughout the Bible. You literally cannot read the Bible without crossing terms and experiences that, uh, that reveal the fact that sexuality is a part of a core human experience that God has designed us with. I mean, if, if, you, if you don't believe this, then here's a picture for you. This is page two of the Bible. Page two of the Bible. Now, I don't know if you see the picture of Adam and Eve and you think, uh, at one point in my life, like I thought this was really weird. Like, it's just a little bit weird for you to like know that uh, little kids are learning about Adam and Eve and, uh, and we have to censor it. Isn't that just like a bit funny to you? Uh, like like uh, in elementary school or like when you're first learning about Jesus, like the first pages of the Bible are naked people who are engaging in sexual intercourse with one another. Isn't that wild? Like if you just gave somebody that book and go, hey, read this, start on page one, what would they get from that? What would they see from that? Well, what's so crazy is when God designs this, he doesn't say, hey, this is my design and make sure that you blur out uh, the funny parts there. That's not what he says. He doesn't like design this and they go, hey, just make sure you censor and, and you blur where you need to. No, he actually designs this and he says, hey, that's actually good. That's, that's really good. That's holy. That is perfect in the garden here. And, and God looks at this and just goes, man, this was how I intended it to be. It's impossible to read the Bible without seeing themes like this come up. I'll give you a couple more. Uh, in, in the Bible, about 139 times you see the word begot or begat. It is the old school way of saying we had kids. And God designed the way for humanity to propagate across generations to be through sexual activity as a result of sex. It's just how he designed it. Another way is the primary sign of God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament was the act of circumcision. The act of circumcision. 
Now, in the, in the new covenant, that act is now baptism. We believe that. Like, there's probably a baptism uh, service coming up for you. And, like, we praise God that that is now the sign uh, and not circumcision uh, any longer. But that's, that's, that's what that is. Uh, in the Old Testament, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed partially because of rampant distortions of sexual expression, including rape. God instructs one of his prophets in the Old Testament, whose name was Hosea, to find a wife and make sure that that woman is a prostitute. Make sure she's a prostitute. And, and the reason why he does this is to like draw a conclusion or a similarity to the way that it feels when his people run to other gods. It feels like prostitution. So he's like, hey, take this wife, and as you marry her, you'll get a small glimpse of what it feels like to be me while I'm loving you. That's kind of a hot take. That's in the Bible. The Song of Solomon, the book Song of Solomon, is widely understood to be an allegory for sex. It's been said that some Jewish teachers even didn't even allow their students to read this book until they were grown-ups. So like, I just imagine like a little, little Jewish kids like, like lock their door, like go under the covers for their bed with a flashlight, and they're like reading the Bible. <laughs> just picture that moment. And when you get into the New Testament, you can't even describe Jesus' mother or the circumstances around how he was born and entered into humanity without using the term virgin. That term comes up a lot. Maybe one of the most beautiful pictures is that when Jesus is described as coming back for his people, he describes himself as the groom. He describes his church as the bride, effectively saying, I'm going to love you. I'm going to covenant myself to you. There's going to be intimacy. There's going to be deep knowledge of one another. So it becomes unbelievably obvious that spirituality and sexuality are intricately tied to one another. A few years back, uh, there was an article in GQ where one, a journalist from GQ went to a megachurch uh, and they, they wanted to see what all the fuss was about and write an article about it. And when they were at this megachurch, they, they started to describe what it was like as a non-Christian to experience uh, a worship set with music. And they basically said it was, it was very sexy. Like there was a lot of hot breathing happening into the microphone. They said it made my body feel confused. They said the melody sounded like uh, the Jonas Brothers, but the lyrics were hymns. <laughs> That's like how they described it. Like a very strange, it's a very strange thing. But oh, it's such good news to me, and it should be to you, that God cares about sexuality. What good news is this for the world? The fact that we don't have to be on our own to try and figure this out. This can actually be a really helpful thing, not just for us, but for other people as well. I remember hearing a story about a pastor who was officiating a wedding, and he's up front as the couple is in front of him, and he's trying to describe to everybody how marriage uh, is, is intricately tied with spirituality and with God himself. And this is how he did it. This is what he said out loud. He said, marriage is great. And you know what else is great? An orgasm. He said, an orgasm is great. And he said, and if you think an orgasm is great, wouldn't you love to meet the one who designed the orgasm? <laughs> he tells the story, he gets off of stage and he says immediately two lines form directly towards him. One line was of angry Christians who were so mad about what he said at the marriage ceremony, the wedding ceremony. And the other line was non-Christians who were interested in hearing more about the God that he was referring to. Isn't that wild? that on our deepest level as humans, whether we know Jesus or not, we're asking questions about this. 
It might sound strange to you that we are talking about this because I think that most people fall in two camps. Uh, and, and I think both of these camps are, are, are flawed, but most people fall in two camps when they think about sexuality. The first is people who fear their desires. They fear desires. And when they experience sexual desire, they go, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to run away from it. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to pretend like it's not there. The best way to experience a godly sexuality is to pretend like it's not there at all. Don't talk to the opposite sex. Definitely don't dance. There's no right when it comes to sexuality. Even in marriage, this should not be really talked about openly. It's kind of like uh, in the house when you have like fine china and you're like, we all know it's there, but we just don't use it. We, we don't ever use that right there. And this is the American church thing to do is effectively to not talk about this thing. There's a quote from a person who, uh, who I, I talked, uh, who I read about uh, who was from Texas and they said, um, the one thing that I learned growing up in the church in Texas was that sex is the most vile thing in the whole world and make sure you save it for the person that you love the most. <laughs> That's some of our approach to this. And so when you fear your desires, what ends up happening is you suppress your sexuality. You suppress it. You push it down. You deny it. You don't think about it. You pretend like it's not there. That's the answer for yourself when you experience this, as well as any person who is struggling or questioning or has confusion about sexuality. The answer is just don't. Just don't. That's the way that you approach it. And the problem with that is this is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. This is a part of who you are. And in addition to that, this is one of the primary ways that the enemy wants to distort your understanding of God and your understanding of holiness is to attack sexuality. And so you can't just suppress it because at some point it's going to come back up. It's going to find its way. It's part of the universal human experience. So you have a group of people who, who fear it. You have another camp of people who just follow their desires. They don't fear their desires. They give into their desires. There's no wrong for these people as long as you feel like your truest self when you're doing it. It's impossible for there to be a wrong way to express your sexuality if it's wrapped in romance, if it's wrapped in love. If it's love, it's not wrong. And the idea that God might have a way that runs contrary to the way that you feel about your sexuality is so off-putting and is so contrary to the way that you would desire to think. And so rather than let God inform you on this, and rather than let God's uh, truth and holiness be your marker and your drive for this, you follow your strongest urge and you instruct other people to just follow their strongest urge. Almost like the way to truth is to understand myself more and more. I'm gonna go deeper and deeper into myself and that's where I'll find what's right. So you don't suppress it like the people who fear it. You secularize it. It's just romance. It's just young love. It's just exploring. It's just physical. It's natural. It's not holy. It's primal. It's much more animalistic than it is angelic. That's how we treat sexuality. And rather than go to God, you indulge, indulge, indulge. You think maybe the Bible is wrong. You think maybe God is wrong. Maybe Christianity is wrong. But you never think maybe I am wrong. Maybe my feelings are wrong. And the problem with this is there is right and wrong. There is darkness and light. There is holiness and unholiness. 
there is righteousness and unrighteousness. There is a God who desires righteousness from his people. And what we find now over and over again is when we understand activity around sex, that the mind actually begins to be programmed through sexual activity at a much higher rate than other activities. They call, uh, scientists call this uh, neural pathways. It's almost like running ruts in your brain. Similarly to like if you went into your backyard and you walked the same trail over and over and over again, that becomes the easiest route through your backyard. It becomes the easiest way and that happens in your mind. And so when you indulge, indulge, indulge and you give way to feeling and, and freeing your desires and over and over again secularizing it and, and continually following it, what happens is your bar for sacrifice and self-denial starts to lower and lower and lower. And you create that rut in your brain, in your mind and in your heart. You train yourself to follow the way towards the biggest payoff and then bounce towards the next big payoff. You're training yourself to avoid self-denial. And then many of us think that we're going to run into somebody who's like Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And miraculously, we're going to get married and all of a sudden we're going to desire monogamy. Or all of a sudden we're going to be uh, co totally, completely committed to that individual. But you're not. Because you've trained yourself, you've trained your brain over and over to get the thing that is the least sacrifice to you, the least de uh, denial to you. And instead of setting yourself up for life of uh, holiness and, and life of fulfillment, you're setting yourself up for a life of emptiness and a life of adultery and a life of divorce. Unfortunately, that's last week's sermon was actually that uh, the person that you are when you're single ends up being the person that you are when you're married. And this all comes from Genesis chapter 1. Our second guiding text is Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. You say Colossians 1 out loud. Colossians 1. Say it again. Colossians 1. All right, now say Genesis 1 and Colossians 1. Genesis 1 and Colossians 1. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 16. The Son, that's Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all of creation. For in Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Jesus is the clear embodiment of God. Jesus is God made manifest in the life of a human. Jesus is the personal and historic and human manifestation of the words and the ways of God. God put flesh on himself and that's Jesus. If you've seen the movie, The Terminator, uh, you, you know this, the, this kind of this plot line, Arnold Schwarzenegger is this robot from the future. He goes to the past to try and kill somebody, but then he changes his mind. And there's a, there's a, a moment in the movie where he, he reveals that he's actually a robot. He peels back the skin on his arm and you see that he's metallic. So you pull back the skin on Arnold and you see machine. You pull back the flesh on Jesus and you have God. That's what you have. This is the physical, personal embodiment of God. And this is huge for us. And the reason why Colossians 1 is a guiding text is because of a small three-letter word in verse 16. It's the second to last word in verse 16. It's the word for. For. 
You are not only made like God, you were made for God. You were not only made in His image, you were made for His glory. You were made to be near Him and to be with Him, to be built by Him for Himself. You are purposed for Jesus. Another way, another image to think about is in Toy Story, on the bottom of Woody's foot, the name is written Andy. On the bottom of your foot, the name that is written is Jesus. That's what it says here in Colossians 1.16. So Genesis 1 answers the question, who am I supposed to be like? Colossians 1 answers the question, who am I supposed to be for? And this is so important when it comes to sexuality because your sexuality, the purpose of it is to glorify God. And I see two primary ways this happens. The first is that your sexuality reminds you of the story that you are wrapped up in, the gospel story, the story of God's redemption of all of humanity and our deep need for him. Freud diagnosed a deep pain that we feel inside of us as humans as the longing for a parent, a parent. Jung diagnosed the deep pain that we feel inside of us as the longing for the opposite sex. And the gospel diagnoses the deep pain and existential crisis that you feel as the longing for God himself. The necessity to experience communion with God, intimacy with God, a God who knows you and loves you and sees you despite every flaw that you have, despite every imperfection that you have, despite every sin that you are entangled in, a God who knows you and longs for you. And that longing gives a picture of sexuality that's supposed to be for the glory of God. The second way that this is towards God's glory is that sexuality is a witness to the world. When you find sexuality practiced in the ways of Jesus, what happens is healing and not exploitation. Outside of the ways of Jesus, sexuality is transactional. Sexuality is, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And what ends up happening in that scenario is exploitation. Things like monogamy do not have a place outside of the ways of Jesus. Latching yourself to a spouse who is 180 degrees different from you for life is outside of, of everything that we can understand except for Jesus. Things like servanthood and humility. These are profoundly rare and profoundly radical ideas in hookup culture. These things, I believe, would solve much of the wounds that we have of this transactional sexual activity and sex when it comes to hookup culture. And you would find yourself to be feeling this way as well. What, what causes so much trauma is distortions, exploitation outside of God's perfect design. These things create not health. They do not create healing. They create harm and trauma. And you don't have to look very far to see that sex and sexuality used in a negative and selfish, indulgent light does not lead to healing. But sexuality uh, practiced in the ways of, Je of Jesus produces healing and not exploitation. Our last guiding text is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Genesis 1, 1 Corinthians, uh, Genesis 1, Colossians 1, and 1 Corinthians 6. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor drunkards, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The unrighteous will not see God. The unrighteous will not experience God. Sinners will not know God. And Paul lists all of these distortions, a whole lot of them. Sexual immorality, Paul gives evidence to here, is an eternal death sentence. And those who practice it will not see God. Why is that? How can he say that? How, how can he possibly say that? Well, it's because it steals glory from God. That's what sexual immorality does. It steals glory from God. It exploits. It's selfish, not selfless. It's self-serving, not others serving. It causes you to be seen as great, not Jesus. It puts you at the center of worship. It puts you at the center of the universe. It puts you on the place of the throne. And everyone around you exists to serve your sexual needs. That's what sexual immorality does. It takes the crown off of the head of Jesus and it puts it on your head. That's how we can say this. In the, in the Middle Ages, they had a term for what happens when somebody comes for the crown of the king treason. This is what happens when sexual immorality becomes the mode by which we operate. We put ourselves in the seat of ultimate decision maker and we command people to serve us, to serve our needs, to bow down to us. Paul's intent here is not to create a do and don't list. He starts off by saying unrighteousness is a death sentence. And then he names pretty much everything. And if you're honest with yourself, you look through that list and you go, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. We've all done these things. We're helpless in these things. What, what Paul just wrote in that verse condemns you. And it condemns me. Your craving for random hookups to feel complete is unrighteousness. Your ability, your inability to be content with singleness is unrighteousness. Your addiction to pornography is unrighteousness. Your lust for another person of the same sex is unrighteousness. Your lust for another person of the opposite sex is unrighteousness. Your relentless pursuit of sex without sacrifice is unrighteousness. And because of those things, you will not see God. But God made a way to be declared righteous, even though you're not righteous. God made a way to be washed clean, even though you're not clean. 
God made a way to be declared holy and justified, even though you're not holy and you're not justified. Everybody has committed unrighteousness. We all are condemned under this banner, no matter what your sexual orientation is. Everybody has been. But Paul says something here that's unbelievably beautiful. He says, this was a former reality for some of you. Verse 11, as were some of you, as were some of you. Some of you did not honor God with your sexuality. Some of you did not honor him in that way. Some of you find yourself continually uh, uh, working against his glory and not exposing his goodness and his mercy through homosexual sin or heterosexual sin. You find a word, if you find a word in this text that describes you, that's bad news and you're unrighteous. But there is good news in this that Christ has made a way for you to be holy despite your unrighteousness. See, when Jesus takes a place in your heart, what happens is he begins to wash you. What happens is he begins to make you holy. He declares you not guilty any longer. And this is what the gospel does, that there is a lawful list of wrongs against you that make you not able to interact with God. And Jesus stands in between all of the punishment for those things. He gifts you his righteousness. He gifts you his holiness. He gifts you his cleanliness. He takes your sin away from you. He takes your immorality away from you, your unrighteousness away from you you and he begins to slowly over time free you from the heart postures and the actions that used to make you unholy that previously made you unrighteous see genesis 1 it answers this question who am i supposed to be like colossians 1 answers the question who am i supposed to be for and first corinthians 6 answers the question who can possibly fix my sexual brokenness it's obvious that God has designed us with a sexuality that mimics him. It's also obvious that we have deviated from that plan. We have deviated from his holiness, but it's also obvious in the story of the gospel that, it, that God's redemption of humanity through the gospel includes the redemption of our broken sexuality. Praise God. Praise God. See, the center of Christian morality is not sexual morality. That's to say the goal of the gospel is not to get guys to like girls and get girls to like guys. The goal of the gospel is to free people from, from sin that enslaves them, that traps them, including sin of sexual immorality broken sexuality. And the goal of the gospel is to give people redemption in Christ through the submission of all of who we are unto him in his loving and healing lordship. See, none of us naturally line up with what Jesus teaches. None of us. There's not a culture that the gospel message has ever fallen on that naturally lines up with what Jesus teaches. There's no area of our life that is unscarred or unmarred by sin. Sin disorders the whole of your life, including your sexuality. Every single one of us is broken in this. We all have sexual desires that are off kilter and that are in one way or another disordered. Ordered. If I could say it this way, there is nobody who is straight. There is nobody who is holy. There is nobody who is unskewed. 
There's nobody who walks in this perfectly. Some in a heterosexual way are skewed and some in a homosexual way are skewed. And therefore, all of us have a deep need to be unbroken and healed and given unto Jesus. God's design for sexuality is not that we suppress it. It's not that we secularize it. It is that we submit it. That we submit it Unto, unto him. The Christian is a person who submits their sexuality f- unto Jesus for use, for forgiveness, for healing, and for purpose. See, culture says, take whatever the path of least resistance is for you. And Jesus goes, no, 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 actually, uh, narrow is the path. It's not a wide path. It's not an easy path. It's a narrow path. Culture would say, do whatever you feel like you were born to do and you were born with. And Jesus goes, no, actually, the way you were born was broken. You need to be born again. You need a new heart. You need new desires. You need a new thought life. So what does it look like to submit your sexuality? I think many of you are here today because you have some awareness of God, some awareness of your soul. I just want to prompt you with the question, could it be that God would design a better way for you than what you're currently living in? Submission to the ways of Jesus looks like this. It looks like this, saying, I believe that you're right, Jesus. Even when it's hard for me, My opinion gives way to your opinion, Jesus, because you are perfect and I am not. As you submit your sexuality, your sexuality cannot be your identity any longer. It can't be your identifier any longer. If you're same-sex attracted today and you're listening, I want to tell you um, I'm so grateful, so grateful that you're here. I want to tell you that I believe God loves you. I want to tell you that as Resonate Church, we want to enter into conversations with you about what your experience is like, about how you live, about where you are in your understanding of Jesus. I believe God wants you, that he's pursuing you, that he loves you. I want to tell you that the quest for sexual expression aimed outside of a man-woman lifelong covenant starts to no longer be the identity as you follow Jesus. That he begins to replace your identity with an identity found in himself. He says, you are my child. That's how you identify yourself. You are my beloved. That's your identifier. You are my dearest. That's my identifier. And if you come to know Jesus, what he'll begin to do is relocate the identity that was formerly in you and formerly in others. And he will replace that identity with himself. He'll replace it with himself. And in doing that, you will find something that is so much better than romance. You'll find something that's so much better than sex. You'll find something that's so much better than marriage. You will find the very one whom all three of those things point to. You'll find him and you'll have him. If you're heterosexual and you're listening today, I want to tell you that the consistent strain to be identified and validated by the presence of a hot counterpart can no longer be your identity. And that in Christ, he will work to remove a personal identity and an identity found in another individual. And he will transform that to being located in him. Your avid quest 
before sexual release will no longer be your identity. It'll give way to a new identity in Christ. And it may not go away. Your temptation might not go away, but the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. He will begin to replace himself on the throne of your heart. And in doing, you will find something that is greater than sex and greater than marriage and greater than romance. You will find the one whom all three of those things point towards. I totally understand how you can hear this today and go, hey, I don't even want to, this is too much. I understand it's, it's nearly un unfathomable to imagine that there is something greater than all of those things. But um, take it from somebody who is in love personally and married and has a beautiful family and has sex. There's nothing greater than Jesus. There's nothing greater than Jesus. The love of God is greater far. So as you do this, as you learn to submit, it starts with your attention and your affection follows. And then you submit your autonomy. And then you submit your worldview. And you submit your dreams. And then maybe you submit your wallet next. And in doing that, what you'll find is slowly by slowly, obedience to Christ flourishes your life. It flourishes you and releases you to be exactly who you were created to be, even though it costs you everything. And Jesus will work on every aspect of your life, including your sexuality. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.